So that's Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 to 24. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who, believe, who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us, unless, when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you have forced your father and mother, your brothers and all of your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell me what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days, until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men stared back, started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. 
All the people are melting in fear because of us. This is God's word. Our Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. We thank you that you are a God who has not left us in the dark about you or your purposes in the world. Uh, Father, we thank you as well that you're a God who tells us history uh, so that our faith would not have to be blind. That we can see that you have a track record as a God who makes promises and keeps them. A God who says he will do things and does them. And so, Father, we pray that we would hear you speak tonight, uh, reminding us of your faithfulness and showing us again your wonderful, rich, beautiful character. And Father, we pray this, that we might trust you more, that we might come to you more confidently, and that we might see it as a privilege and an honor to be your servants, your people. Amen. Now, as the video said, in Genesis 12, God makes promises to Abraham. And in one sense, the whole Old Testament is built on those promises that Abraham's descendants would know God with them, that they would have a land of their own. That they wouldn't just be a small family but a great nation. And that as they blessed people, that all the nations would somehow find blessing through Abraham's descendants. And as, uh, as we said last week, the book of Joshua is really God sort of cashing out his promises. So they've been passed down the generations like a family heirloom in Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And now in, in Joshua you really see the the promises coming to fruition. They are a nation. You can tick that one off. They are a nation as they stand on the banks of the River Jordan. The land is in front of them, and they don't yet own it, and there's some issues there, but you can. uh, we're starting to see, okay, they've got a land, but tonight there is a different promise driving this passage, and that is the promise that all nations will be blessed through you. The promise to Abraham's descendants that all nations would be blessed through them. Uh, let's, uh, let's look at the passage together and we'll see, uh, we'll see what happens. Actually, it's an appalling start. It's a highly unpromising start if you, uh, if you know your Bible. Um, Joshua 2 verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and they stayed there. Now, the spies probably uh, traveled north from the camp at Shittim and forded the Jordan where it was a little bit shallower, and then they head southwest and into the great plain of Jericho and the fortress city that dominates the whole area. And they, uh, and they then come back with this report. But this isn't the first time that the Israelites have sent out spies from this area. Uh, so back in Numbers 13, um, as, the, uh, as, the, as the video reminded us, in Numbers 13, Moses sends out 12 spies to look over the promised land. And it doesn't go all that well. Uh, If you know your Bible, you'll remember, uh, basically 10 of them come back and say, it's a disaster. All the people, they're they're all as tall as Dickie and as big as Laws. We're going to get absolutely destroyed. They're going to slaughter us. They're massive. And they've got huge cities. It's a disaster. There's no way we can possess the land. And they stir up fear amongst the people. And the people respond to the report, um, not with faith, But judging by sight, and so say there's no way we can take possession of what God has promised. And they rebel against uh, Moses and refuse to do what God says. Now there were two spies on that occasion, Joshua and Caleb, who were faithful. And so I guess uh, Joshua says, look, sending out 12 spies, not such a good idea. I'm going to send out two spies. 
try and be like the other time we sent out two spies, okay? And so he sends out the two spies. But there's another problem with, the, with two spies being sent out here. And the, the problem is where Israel is staying, Shittim. It is not that it's a slightly unfortunate name in English, and that's the last time I'm going to use it tonight. Uh, that's not the problem. Uh, the problem is what happened when they were staying there before. See, in Numbers 25, um, the, the Midianite people are camping near the Israelites. And the Israelites start, uh, the Israelite men start dating uh, Midianite women. And the Midianite women uh, get them involved in worshipping the wicked ways of the Midianite gods. Uh, they lead them astray from the God of the Bible. And its sexual unfaithfulness leads them to religious, theological unfaithfulness, leads them away from God. So when you read here, uh, the spies are sent out from Shittim and they go and stay at the house of a prostitute, you think, oh no, not again. Seriously, it is not a promising start. But this story will turn out very differently. They're not staying at a brothel to indulge in sexual sin. And far from luring the spies away from the God of the Bible, Rahab will show greater faith a greater declaration of faith than really any man up to this point in in Scripture almost. What she says about God is the most amazing declaration of faith in the God of the Bible. Okay, let's uh, let's dig into the story. And the first thing we see is a commendable liar. Uh, the spies are sought out um, basically somewhere in a shady, dark area of town, unsurprisingly, somewhere that I hope they won't be noticed. So they go for this sort of brothel hostel uh, run by a prostitute called Rahab. Things don't turn out according to plan, though. They're obviously um, they may have been chosen for their theological faithfulness that they're going to bring back a good report, but it doesn't seem that they're the best spies in the world. And very quickly they're discovered. And we read verse two: the king of Jericho is told, "Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the." land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But extraordinarily, Rahab does not give them up. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And now she tells a lie. Well, it's a whole series of lies. It's basically a tissue of whoppers for the next few verses. So, uh, she says, uh, yes, the, the men came to me, but I did not know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know where they, which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she'd taken them up on the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she'd laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had got out, the gate was shut. That is at least four barefaced lies. I don't know where they're from. Uh-uh. They've already left the city. Uh-uh. I don't know which way they fled. Uh-uh. If you run quickly, you'll catch them. Uh-uh. Everything she says is a lie. Now, this account is not recorded in the Bible to, uh, to give us a treatise on the morality of lying. If that was the point of it, then you would expect some comment uh, addressing her lies. Uh, there's nothing. It just is what it is. That's, there's no description, no analysis of it. However, it is one of the questions that everybody's got in their minds as you look at this passage. Uh, so rather than try and move on to what is the, what the, the writer of the book of Joshua wants us to learn about, let's just deal with this first so that you're not all trying to think about that and ignoring um, what God wants us to hear. So uh, three quick things to say about the lies that we read in this passage. The first thing is to say there is a difference between what the Bible records and what it recommends, between uh, what it describes and what it prescribes. 
as we should do. And I mean, we, we've got to be able to get that. We're not meant to copy everything that's recorded in the Bible. The, the Bible records people hated Jesus and put him to death. You don't go copying that. And so you shouldn't just think because it's here, well, we should do it. Uh, secondly, God is the God of truth. It is Satan who is the father of lies, uh, John eight forty four says. And God commands us, if we call ourselves Christians in Ephesians 4, to put off falsehood and speak truthfully to our neighbor. In Revelation twenty two fifteen, we're told it's those who practice falsehood who are one of the categories of people that are cut out from God's eternal kingdom forever. So if you call yourself a Christian, then you ought to be known for your willingness to tell the truth, not from your indulgence of convenient lies to cover yourself. Christians should be people of truth because God is the God of truth. So just because it happens doesn't mean we should copy it. Uh, secondly, the basic thing the Bible shows us is God is the God of truth. But thirdly, what do we make of Rahab in this particular instance? Well, before we actually look at what she did, don't expect too much from her at this stage. She is uh, part of a people who are about the most wicked culture ever known to mankind, according to, to what God says in the Bible. She is making her first tentative steps towards trusting in the God of the Bible and following his ways. You do not criticize an 18-month-old toddler for not being able to tap dance. You, know, you don't expect that from an 18-month-old. And you, don't, you shouldn't expect Rahab to show us advanced biblical morality. That she does anything right is extraordinary given the culture she's from. But was she right to lie? Well, Hebrews 11, I guess, gets the closest to giving us a judgment on this. Uh, and it commends her for protecting the spies, which she does by lying. How is that possible? Well, look, here's the headline, I think. Uh, not everyone has a right to the truth. Not everyone has a, a legal or a moral right to the truth. Look, you, we get this instinctively. Uh, it's all right to put a fake box on your house that looks like a burglar alarm. That's a lie. I have a burglar alarm. I don't, but I want burglars to think I do. That's a lie, but we get that. Sort of it's, it's okay if a, if a woman's walking through a park late at night and she's aware that there's a slightly weird guy starting to tail her it's, and her phone battery's dead. It's all right for her to take out the phone and say, hi, brother, when are you coming to meet me? Are you, are you close yet? Uh, I know your boxing training's overrun. Did you knock everybody out again? Great, I, I hope you're not going to be more than a minute or two. It's all right for her to do that. We get that because, well, there's a reason. Burglars do not have a right to know the truth about whether your house is unprotected. And a man who wants to uh, abuse and attack a defenseless woman does not have the right to know whether her big brother is about to appear. And the soldiers in this story don't have a right to know the truth because they want to use the truth to harm God's people. They don't have a right to the truth in this instance. So you and I, we don't look for excuses to lie. We don't tell lies to protect ourselves. You know, you messed up at work, tell a lie. No, your boss has a right to the truth in that instance. But we're not obliged to tell the truth to those who will use it to harm others. Uh, now, this is not trying to escape God's law, actually. Uh, this is applying God's law. Well, how can I say that? The ninth commandment says, do not bear false witness about your neighbor. Yes, but Jesus summarizes, what's the whole point of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what drives the Ten Commandments. They give you ten concrete directions 
for what it means to love God and love your neighbor. And Rahab's lie is driven by a love for neighbor, a desire to protect these spies. Now, the truth is you can read some amazing stories if you read Christian biography of, uh, of people who've been convinced now I should tell the truth and have seen God uh, protect them in amazing ways. There are people who protected Jews in the Second World War and when Nazis knocked on the door said, yep, we've got a house full of them and they just walked on. Or Brother Andrew, who, uh, the great Bible smuggler, God smuggler, the, ex, um, the Dutch ex-Marine who smuggled Bibles into communist Europe at great risk um, in, the, in the post-war years. And often would have an open Bible on the seat and would let the guards look and they just would have their eyes blinded by God. And he was convinced that he, he should be truthful in it. Um, and if God convicts you to tell the truth in a situation, then do it. But I do think that the Bible gives us this, uh, this distinction. We're not required sometimes to tell the truth. It's a, it's a tricky moral argument. And look, to be perfectly honest, for most of us, for you and for me, most of the time, the issue is not, will I have the wisdom to work out whether this is a situation where I'm right to withhold the truth? For most of us, for most of the time, the issue is, will I have the courage to tell the truth when it's going to cost me? Actually, that's, that's the biggest issue. So live as people of the truth is the Bible's basic command. But the story of Rahab does help us to recognize that sometimes, rarely, loving your neighbor means withholding the truth from people who will use it for evil ends. There you go. Okay, can we move on? Yes. Uh, So back to the story and the heart of the matter and the longest, I think this is the longest uninterrupted speech by a woman in the whole Old Testament, um, uh, at least for for quite a while in the Old Testament. And structurally, this is the center of the narrative. So you'll see on, um, if you look on your outlines, you'll see at the bottom there just a, uh, just a, a structural analysis just to, to help you see that this is the heart of what, um, what God wants to say. And so Rahab's uh, house, house come brothel is built in the city walls. And up on the roof, the, the spies are lying hidden under big bundles of flax that's drying. And they're lying there until night has fallen. And so we pick up the story at verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. The news of God's awesome deeds has spread, which is not surprising. When you split the Red Sea, the word tends to spread. It's, you know, it's not an everyday occurrence. And she, and she has heard what God has done. But she does more than just to, uh, proclaim that you've done some amazing things, God. She, she uses some very interesting language. So firstly, she proclaims the promises of the God of the Bible. Verse 9, she recognizes your God has given you this land. She recognizes God's promises. And then she proclaims God's power. He split the Red Sea as you, as you left Egypt. And he, he enabled you to smash the mighty armies of those great kings, Sion and Og, the, the Amorite kings east of the Jordan. And she proclaims the uniqueness, the universal nature of this God. She doesn't say your God is different from our God. She says the Lord your God is God in heavens above and on the earth below. 
These are extraordinary things to hear. This is like um, the wife of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the, the head of Islamic State, the caliph. It's like his wife standing up on Al Jazeera and saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. It is absolutely that extraordinary. But if you have ears to hear it, there is, an, there is a, a huge tension actually in these verses. Because you see, the words that Rahab uses are very important Bible words. And they would be familiar to the Israelite spies. You see the word uh, in verse 9, great fear, and then the, the words for melting in fear. Uh, and the heart sinking and courage failing in verse 11. And then the word for completely destroyed in verse 10. Those are specific words that God uses as he describes and as he proclaims his judgment on the people of Canaan. They are the words that God used in saying all of Canaan is to be destroyed completely, every living thing. You read that in Deuteronomy 20, 16 to 18 and Exodus 15, 14 to 16. As God says, this is a wicked people and they're going to be wiped out in my judgment. In other words, as she proclaims the greatness of God, she is showing an awareness. Your God is a great God and your God has promised that I and all my people ought to be exterminated, destroyed, judged completely. But then there are significant Bible verses in the second half of what she says, verses 12 to 14. And in particular, in these verses, there is a word that appears three times that is a hugely important word in the Old Testament. See if you can spot it. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Kind is a bit of a weak word in English. It is not a weak word in the Hebrew. It translates the word chesed, which is much bigger than just kind. It means God's faithful, unbreakable commitment to keep his promise to faithfully love his people. It refers to his covenant faithfulness that he says, I, God, give you my absolute word that I will love you. I will look after you and I will rescue you and nothing and no one can stop me from doing so. That is the word that she is using again and again here. This, is a, this word is, it's the word that summarizes what happens at the cross when God says human wickedness is so appalling that the only possible way for people like me and you to be saved is if God becomes a human being and sends his own son to die, cursed by God, cut off from him on the cross. But because God has made that unbreakable commitment, he does even that. In other words, it's saying, uh, Chesed says, it's a commitment, a covenant faithfulness that years will not fade. And the wickedness, the stupidity, the grumbling, the disobedience and the failings of the people that he set his love on, even that, can't stop God fulfilling his promise. And in these verses, Rahab acknowledges, I and my people ought to be destroyed. But please be kind. God has promised our destruction, but God is also a God of faithful kindness and mercy. In other words, she casts herself on the mercy of God. So how do the spies know that God will accept Rahab? 
They have no word from God as they set out. Joshua doesn't say to them, if you encounter a Canaanite who's willing to repent, then accept them. So how do the, how do the, the spies know that they have authority to say, okay, we'll accept you? Well, because the promise that Rahab quotes in verse 9, that God has given you this land, is not the only promise in the Old Testament. At the start, I mentioned Genesis 12, and God's promise to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, Genesis 12, 2. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the promise that drives this passage. I will bless those who bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It is just a, it's a glimmer, a hint at this stage of the Bible of what will become uh, a bright shining sun in the New Testament as the gospel message of Jesus Christ in the early days of after Jesus' resurrection goes out from Jerusalem and beyond uh, the Jewish areas and the semi-Jewish areas of Samaria and right out through past Rome and to the ends of the world. That is God's plan. And what this means for you and for me is, there are no unforgivable people. There are no unforgivable people. That's what the salvation of Rahab teaches us. She is part of a culture that is so utterly depraved and wicked that God says in Leviticus 18.28, the land will vomit them out. That is his... That is God's analysis of the behavior of this people. They are so foul, so wicked, so appalling, the land will vomit them out. We have this sort of dances with wolves view of, uh, of every other culture, except, um, especially in this country, we're terribly offended. You know, we mustn't, you know, the British Empire, the worst thing that ever happened in history, everything else was all right. You know, we feel like we, you know, every tribal culture must be good and lovely. We have to say that. It's kind of part of the, the dogma of our age. The Canaanites were unbelievably wicked. They dig up um, Canaanite temples still, and the archaeologists find uh, rooms full of jars that were used to, to store the ashes for when you burned your children in the fire, because that was just normal part of worship. They were unspeakably evil people. You cannot get someone less likely to be welcomed into the people of God than Rahab. She's part of this wicked culture, and within a wicked culture, she's a prostitute. And in the Old Testament, uh, sexual unfaithfulness almost always goes with religious unfaithfulness. So it's basically saying God has picked the person who is the most unsavable, unforgivable person we would imagine. And he has chosen her and forgiven her and extended his grace to her. And I don't know if there are some here tonight and you don't think deep down God could ever forgive you. God could ever welcome you. Rahab is God's way of saying to you, whoever you are and whatever you have done, I love you. And you too can take shelter under my faithful covenant love. That is, that is what Rahab is here to teach us. It's just what God does. And the God who showed mercy to Rahab is the Jesus who welcomed tax collectors and prostitutes. So if you're a Christian, you're not special. <laughs> Don't think you're special if God's chosen you as a Christian. God tends to choose the worst. <laughs> so if you're a Christian and you, you're kind of feeling good about the fact that God has chosen me, well, usually God shows how great he is by choosing the worst, the wickedest, the stupidest. So hey, that's us. <laughs> <Don't>, <laughs> there's nothing particularly to be proud about, about being a Christian. God displays his glory 
by choosing the least worthy. And this should change our attitude to others. I guess, just as an aside, in one sense, I mean, if God can forgive Rahab, then there's nobody I should be able to withhold forgiveness from. If God is willing to forgive uh, a pagan prostitute, then who on earth am I to withhold forgiveness from other people? And if God has shown forgiveness to me, then how can I hold it back from others? In Rahab, we see a God who is willing to forgive anybody. And if we follow that God, let, let that be a mark of us as well. But also, to build on that, it affects who we bother telling about Jesus as Christians. I wonder if there are some of us, well, in all of us, there is this, we make these distinctions in our minds. We just think there are people who, it's not worth telling them about Jesus or inviting them to church because they're, they're just too far gone, too uninterested. They'd never in a million years come. You know, academic atheist, just, you know, he's into science. Devout Muslim. They're in a gay marriage. There's no way they would ever come to church. Probably those three things couldn't exist in the same person. You know, it would be kind of complicated. But we have these categories in our heads where we think, oh, they could never come. They'd never come. Be encouraged by Rahab. Keep praying. And it's not just a, a random story in the Old Testament that I'm building a lot on. We're told in 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires all kinds of people to be saved and come to a knowledge of salvation. Uh, there was an article, um, there are always articles like this it seems at the moment, in the Guardian last week about the, the decline of Christianity in the UK. And the, the driver for this article was that uh, for the first time there are more people self-identifying as non-religious than as Christian uh, for the first time. Basically it's just uh, people who weren't really Christians but thought I'm white British and therefore I tick the Christian box and no longer saying I'm Christian. So it's, it's the, di- the dying of nominal belief is w- what it was really about. But the really worrying thing, uh, it said uh, evangelical bits of the church are growing. The bits that teach the Bible are growing. But the worrying thing is it said that even within that, the evangelical part of the church, most of the evangelism, most of the conversions are people who already self-identified as Christians. Uh, Either they went to a different sort of church or they wandered away having been raised as Christians as a child. Now, there is nothing wrong with uh, sharing the gospel with people who, um, who are going to, uh, who've, who've wandered away from a Christian faith they were brought up in. Or there's nothing wrong with uh, sharing the gospel if you've got uh, friends who are going to a church which just, they're not hearing any Bible at all. But Rahab shows us the gospel is not just for them, it is not just for people like us, it is for everyone. So I'm so encouraged uh, about the, uh, the, stri- the, um, the street evangelism that's grown over the last uh, couple of years at this church. People going out um, uh, some evenings and then Sunday afternoons uh, to speak to anybody who will listen on the streets of London about Jesus. Because he is for everybody who we might find in London. No one is less likely to become a follower of the God of the Bible than Rahab. And yet she does. It's not a promise that every Rahab we know will respond when we share the gospel. But don't write people off because of their background or their beliefs. Don't say no for them. Jesus died for people like that. And in fact, um, here at the front of this church, we baptize people from almost all of those categories. We baptize the scientific atheists. We baptize people called Muhammad, Muslims. We baptize all kinds of people 
Don't write people off. The wonderful, wonderful news of the God of the Bible is that his love is broad enough. His forgiveness is great enough for anyone, and that includes you and me and everybody out there. So we learn about the merciful judge, and then thirdly, finally, we learn about the significant thread. Now, the fact that the story is interrupted by Rahab's speech shows that her speech is the most important thing, much more important than finding out whether the spies uh, make it safely home. But we now return um, to the spies and find out what happened. Uh, So, verse 15. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, "Uh, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days till they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you've tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you've brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If any of them go outside the house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we're doing, we'll be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she went, uh, sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills, stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Now, people tie themselves in knots over the scarlet cord without being too corny. Uh, uh, It's a cord made of scarlet, scarlet's red, Uh, Jesus' blood is red, and so this cord is pointing to what? I mean, it's just random word associations, but people kind of, they, they, they find, I've got to, you know, the Old Testament has to point to Jesus. How do I get to Jesus? Red, 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 that'll do. And, and so suddenly it's, uh, we go straight from the scarlet cord to the cross of Christ. Uh, but that's just random word connections. And the New Testament makes nothing of that link. There is, however, one other place in the Bible where this same word, the scarlet cord, appears. And it's quite a significant link. In Genesis 38, we read that as Tamar gives birth to Judah's twin sons, Perez and Zerah, that when the first baby um, puts a hand out, she ties, same word, a scarlet cord around his wrist, which sounds, okay, that just sounds like yet another coincidence, seriously. That's no worse than the red cord red. But here's the thing, Tamar got pregnant by being a prostitute. Tamar is also a foreigner, and Tamar's action was driven by a desire to preserve the people of God. Two scarlet cords, two foreign women, two prostitutes, two actions to help save the people of God. But that's not all. When you turn to the New Testament, you see why this matters and why this link is actually a a significant one after all. In Matthew chapter 1, the very first few verses of the New Testament, we read Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab. Uh, and we carry on. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Both women are in the family line of Jesus Christ. Both are prostitutes, united by a scarlet thread. And this matters, this really, really matters, because there is something significant going on here. This shows us, uh, it's not just that God welcomes anybody, even Rahab, into his kingdom. God is willing to use and have central in his purposes 
anyone, no matter their background. He's not ashamed of Rahab. Uh, I remember a few years back, my grandmother and granddad got really excited about the family tree because their surname was Gray, and they were convinced that Lady Jane Gray was a was the Nine Days Queen was a was a distant relative, as was um, Earl Gray, the, the governor of New Zealand. Turns out. They weren't, um, but there we go. <laughs> Nothing special at all, it turned out. Um, uh, and I remember chortling about this with my dad. And he said, well, our, line, our side of the family does have someone famous. I said, oh, who's that? Said, John Brindley. I said, very famous canal engineer. <laughs> I was kind of hoping for a prime minister or a pirate, you know, a canal engineer. Great. You know, there's one to write home about. But there we go. There's nothing in my family tree. When God was looking at humanity and deciding which family tree will I be born into when I come as Jesus Christ? He chose a family tree marked by pagan prostitution. Isn't that extraordinary? That's where God chose to put himself. Not only is Christianity a message that all are welcome, it's also a message there's no such thing as a second-class Christian. There's nobody who, well, you can become a Christian, but your background rather disqualifies you from serving God. No, God is a God who welcomes and uses anyone. You can be central to his service, useful to him. If he's willing to be born into this family, then he's willing to use you and me. His spirit comes to live in people like us, no matter what is in our family history or our personal history, just as his son was born into this family in spite of everything. You don't have to be born to a missionary mother or an archbishop father to be of any use to God. Don't think you can't be useful to God because of your background. Jesus chose to be born into a line of, uh, involving paganism and prostitution, and he chose cowards who would desert him as his followers. And as his great missionary apostle to take the gospel out into, into the nations, he chose a, a proud Pharisee who murdered people. That's the way it is with God. There are no second-class Christians. Having been forgiven and welcomed by God, all of us can be useful to him. Don't disqualify yourself. Don't excuse yourself from serving God wholeheartedly. Who knows how God might use you? Who knows what he might have planned to do through you? Just don't write yourself off. Come to God, whoever you are, whatever you've done, and there is forgiveness for you as surely as there was for Rahab. Offer yourself to God to serve him, whoever you are, whatever you've done. If Jesus can be born into this family line, if they can be central to salvation history, then who knows what God might have in store for you and for me. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, thank you and praise you that in this chapter you teach us, you say to us that uh, no one is beyond your forgiveness. And we pray that we might believe that, that we might receive your forgiveness ourselves, that we might offer that forgiveness to others in the way that we forgive and in the way that we share the good news of Jesus. And Father, we pray that, that we would offer ourselves in your service, that we would never listen to the lie that we're not good enough. And that we'd be excited to see what you might do as we give ourselves to, to serve you and your gospel and your world for your glory. Amen.